Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the New York Historical Society. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Louise Mirror, New York Historical's president and CEO, and I'm thrilled to see so very many of you, even despite the inclement weather, uh, in our beautiful Robert H. Smith Auditorium. Tonight's program, The Future of the Supreme Court, is the Bonnie and Richard Reese Lecture in Constitutional History and Law, and I am very pleased to be able to thank, personally, Richard Reese, who is with us this evening, who also serves as chair of the executive committee of New York Historical's Board of Trustees. Thanks so much. I'd also like to recognize Cy Sternberg, another member of our board who's in the audience with us this evening, and one of our speakers, Akhil Rita-Mars. So thanks very, very much to all of you for all you do on behalf of this great institution. Uh, of course, I'd like to thank my great colleague, Dale Gregory, from whom you will hear at the close of the program as well. Tonight's program will last about an hour, and it will include a question and answer session. Uh, the Q&A will be conducted by note cards. You should have received a note card on your way into the auditorium. If not, colleagues will be going up and down the aisle to give you a note card, and later on in the program, uh, they will come around to collect the note cards with your questions. And um, I, uh, I must add that right in front of me, someone who is very typically on our stage is here with us as part of the audience this evening, and I'm really proud that he's joined us, Philip Bobbitt. Thanks so much for all you've done on behalf of our institution and our constitutional law programs. So we are very, very pleased indeed to welcome back renowned constitutional scholar and, as I've said, New York historical trustee, Akhil Reed Amar to the New York Historical Society. Uh, professor Amar is Sterling Professor of Law and Political Science at Yale University. Before joining Yale Law School, he clerked on the First Circuit for then Judge Stephen Breyer. He's a recipient of the Devane Medal, Yale's highest award for teaching excellence, and he is the author of several books, including his latest, The Constitution Today. We're, um, we're really, really thrilled that he's joined our board as well. We're glad to welcome Jeffrey Rosen back to the New York Historical Society as well. Mr. Rosen is a colleague of mine, president and CEO of the National Constitution, colleague by extension, I should say, uh, of the National Constitution Center and a professor of law at George Washington University Law School. He's a contributing editor of The Atlantic and a non-resident senior fellow at Brooks, Brookings Institute. His latest book is on Justice Louis Dean Brandeis. Our moderator for this evening is Marcia Coyle, I'm so sorry, Marcia Coyle, Chief Washington Correspondent for the National Law Journal. A lawyer as well as a journalist, she has covered the US Supreme Court for about 30 years, and she is a regular contributor of Supreme Court analysis to PBS's The News Hour. Her work has appeared in many major publications, and she is the author of The Roberts Court, The Struggle for the Constitution. As always, before we begin, I'd like to ask that you please make sure that anything that makes a noise, like a cell phone, is switched off. And now, please join me in welcoming our speakers this evening. Thank you. Well, it's uh, wonderful to be back with you here at the New York Historical Society. And it's also wonderful to be with these two gentlemen who are 
among the foremost interpreters of the Constitution. It's also sort of timely to be here today. And I'm sure that, uh, oh, you're laughing. I think I know what's on your minds, but it's not what I was going to say, it, sort of. Uh, but I'm sure Jeff will correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe, if my Twitter feed is accurate, that today is the 230th anniversary of the beginning of the Constitutional Convention. Am I right, Jeff? May 25th, absolutely May 25th. right. Yes. Okay, good. Yes. Uh, and it's also, just a few hours ago, uh, there was a decision out of a federal appellate court in Virginia, which uh, struck down, in effect, the president's um, travel ban, his executive order travel ban. <laughs> and that will undoubtedly be moving fairly quickly to the U.S. Supreme Court. So it's a good night to be talking about the future of the Supreme Court. And I think uh, before you can really delve into the future, you need to examine perhaps the recent past. And that's where I would like to start. Uh, I remember uh, one of President Obama's final interviews in which he said he was surprised that a president could be denied his Supreme Court appointee for almost a full year uh, without any accountability or consequences. But I, I would like to know uh, how Jeff and Akil feel uh, at this point after a presidential campaign in which both candidates openly talked about litmus tests for appointments to the Supreme Court uh, and then we see the way uh, the Senate Republicans block President Obama's nominee. Are we in new territory here? And, and what do you think it portends as we go forward with probably some more retirements from the court in the near future? So Jeff, if you'd like to start, take it away. Thank you so much. So, so the last justice who had to wait a really long time for confirmation was Louis Brandeis. And he waited uh, 132 days between his nomination in January and his confirmation in June of 1916. Merrick Garland long surpassed that record. And where are we? I think the bottom line is it may be impossible for a president to confirm a Supreme Court nominee when his party doesn't hold the Senate. Wow. I think that if uh, we don't have any retirements now and the, Senate, the Democrats hypothetically took the Senate next time around, they would refuse to confirm any Trump nominee just as uh, the Senate refused to confirm President Obama's nominee. Uh, we can say a lot more, but it's a political yeah. reality. Uh, it's the, we had a wonderful podcast debate at the Constitution Center. I have to plug our great week, weekly We the People podcast, where we convene the top liberal and conservative scholars every week to discuss the constitutional issues of the week. And they tried to set out the constitutional arguments for and against the Senate's duty to confirm. And the liberal scholar, Erwin Chemerinsky, said, if the Congress is acting in a way that makes it impossible for the court to function, that's a violation of the separation of powers. And the conservative scholar said, well, Justice Alito and the other conservative justices said, we're doing fine with four judges so the court can function. So and, and as Akil, I, I have to say, I, we just jumped right in. Ladies and gentlemen, it's so exciting for me to be on this stage with Akil because he was my teacher in law school. <laughs> I was a first-year law student, and this great teacher, and his teaching, out of all of your wonderful awards, Akil, your teaching award is the most meaningful, because this is America's greatest teacher of the Constitution. And imagine the excitement. It's, 
it's such a treat for us to appear together because I can just express appreciation for the excitement that I felt when as a, you know, first weeks into law school, I think, we just had this vigorous debate. And I said, it is impermissible. How could the Senate reduce the size of the Supreme Court? That would be a violation of the separation of powers. And you provided some very persuasive arguments on the other side. And you didn't convince me then, but I think you have convinced me now. So why don't you take it <laughs> away from here and explain historically why the Senate has done this a lot over the course of history. And this is basically a political question. Yeah, um, uh, and right back at you. It's so great to be with, my, uh, with you, Jeff, and, and with you, Marsha. Political selection of the judiciary is not a bug, it's a feature. Um, we, the framers could have designed a system where judges pick the next generation of, of judges, the way uh, a faculty picks the next generation of, of scholars, um, or the way popes pick cardinals, who pick popes, who pick cardinals. That's not how it works. By design, it's a political process in which a president nominates and the Senate confirms. George Washington picked only from the Federalist side of the aisle. Half of the people in America, in effect, voted against the Constitution. Washington didn't pick anyone from that half. Um, uh, when he nominates someone that the Senate doesn't like for political reasons, John Rutledge, um, to be Chief Justice, they deny even Washington his first choice. Adams picks John Adams from the Federalist side of the aisle and Jefferson from the Republican side of the aisle. The first time a president openly reaches across the aisle for the Supreme Court to pick someone of the other political party, it's not until Abraham Lincoln. And at the time, the real divide wasn't, in Lincoln's view, between Republicans and Democrats, but between people who were loyal to the Union and not. He picks Stephen Field, who's a Democrat. But remember, he picks Andrew Johnson, as, who is a de Democrat, as his running mate. That does not end well, of course. But um, uh, um, so add to the fact that there's a political process, kind of by design, and then you have Jeff's additional point. We live in a hyper-partisan world in which there are no more liberal Republicans, Rockefeller Republicans. There are no more conservative Democrats as there were when we were earlier in our career. Um, so in that world where the most liberal Republican on, in the Senate, you know, Susan Collins or something, is still more conservative on all sorts of issues than the most conservative Democrat, Joe Manchin, Heidi Heitkamp, in a hyper-partisan world, yes, it's going to be hard for a president of one party to get the, um, a Senate controlled by the other party to, to say yes. Now, at the end of a very ideological president's second term, um, when the Senate was controlled by another party, I'm not talking about Obama the liberal and the Republican Senate, I'm talking about Reagan the conservative and the Democratic Senate in 1987, um, we got someone through. Um, not Reagan's first choice for that position, Bork, not Reagan's second choice, D.H. Ginsburg, but the third choice, um, Anthony Kennedy, and maybe you know, we can talk about whether he's, how long he's going to be on the court or, or not. That might be the future. He got, we got that through, and it was in the end of the second term of a very ideological president when the Senate was controlled by the other party, but there were still some conservative Democrats, still some liberal Republicans. And Kennedy, in effect, was the Democrats' favorite Republican 
the way Joe Lieberman is the Republicans' favorite Democrat or something <laughs> like that. And, and, but, but Jeff may be right. That's going to be hard to replicate. And that's what Obama thought. I'm going to nominate Garland, who's the Republicans' favorite Democrat. He's a moderate in the Steve Breyer tradition. But because there's more polarization now than there used to be, that's a hard thing to get through. So, so I think Jeff is right. Yeah, so what we're talking now about the Supreme Court, that's the politics end of it. Are there costs in terms of the Supreme Court itself and how it operates? So there is a huge question about whether the court itself will function as an institution above politics. And as Marsha said in her phenomenal book, and everyone, if you want to read the best book on the Roberts Court, read Marsha Coyle's wonderful book, The Roberts Court, which just sets out this tension so strongly. John Roberts comes into office pledging to be a unifier, trying to achieve narrow, unanimous opinions that will help the court transcend the divisions in the country and in Congress. He tells a bunch of journalists, including me, and I think you, he gave you a version of the same thing, Marsha, that he thought it was bad for the country at a time when the court and Congress and the presidency were so polarized to have these five to four decisions along partisan lines. And he was going to try to embrace as his model his greatest predecessor, John Marshall, who had unified the court. Now, he's had mixed success with that vision, but at the end of the day, I give him credit for trying, and I think he deserves huge credit for his brave decision in the Affordable Care Act case to put the legitimacy of the court above his own ideological instincts and to reach a decision that pleased neither side, but which avoided having the court invalidate on partisan grounds the centerpiece of the president's domestic agenda. Uh, there's not a lot of constituency for this moderate-minded uh, view. There are a lot of cases where Roberts has disappointed liberals. He's also disappointed conservatives. And the question is, can he convince his colleagues to play along? So when we had our interview, I wrote uh, a book uh, about the Supreme Court with a thrilling title, The Supreme Court. <laughs> and it was the companion book to a PBS series on the court. And Roberts talked to me because he loves PBS, and I'm sure he loves Marsha. And he said then, he said two things that are really striking. First, he said, I hope it will be said, in my opinions, when you go back and read them, that all of them show a concern for institutional legitimacy. And I really think that teamwork and that sort of consensus-minded approach is crucial. So he sort of presaged and foreshadowed his vote in the Affordable Care Act. But he also said it's going to be really tough because it all depends on my colleagues. I have not, not my greatest power, but my only power as Chief Justice is to write the decision when I'm in the majority or to sign it to the justice who best reflects my views. And then he asked me a really interesting question. He said, who do you think on this court will be the greatest obstacle to my vision of creating narrow, unanimous opinions. I had a brain freeze, Marsha, because he was talking to the Chief Justice. Who do you, who do you think? He that think? he would he Yeah, would that pick. he would identify as the guy who would be the enemy of, not the enemy, the, 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 the guy who would resist narrow, unanimous opinions written by Roberts. Probably Justice Scalia. You'd think Scalia. Or Thomas. Those would seem exactly right, because they're the opposite of uh, the sort of martial-minded. No compromise. No compromise, my way or the highway. Mm -hmm. Scalia um, saying, even of Thomas, is you know, famously reported, Thomas is even more extreme than me. He'd strike any law that's inconsistent with original understanding. I wouldn't do that, because right. I'm not a nut. He famously <laughs> said. And he meant that in an affectionate sense. But it wasn't Scalia and Thomas. He, he was, he, he, I think he, he was talking about Kennedy. Kennedy. Because Kennedy 
It's the Kennedy court, not the Roberts court. When Kennedy goes left, the court goes left. When he goes right, and Kennedy likes broad, sweeping decisions that favor liberty rather than narrow decisions that avoid um, broad constitutional rulings. So as long as Kennedy is in the driver's seat, then Roberts had a tough time of it. And that's why you ask about the future. Really, the whole game changes. If Justice Kennedy does retire, and Akil just mentioned these rumors that are rampant, and none of us knows anything except for rumors, but imagine hypothetically he were to retire, then a strong five to four conservative court then the really the test of Roberts's vision is crucial because then he loses his incentive to compromise. He doesn't have to create narrow unanimous opinions. He has a solid conservative majority. I believe I am a fan of Roberts, and I think his heroes are Marshall and Taft. Uh, Taft is an underappreciated genius. My next book is about Taft, and <laughs> Taft created a lot of unanimous opinions. And I think Roberts really believes in that vision. But if you've got five solid conservative votes, the incentive to compromise will. So my bottom line is, in this current configuration with Kennedy on the court, Roberts still has an incentive to make it the Roberts court and sometimes to break ranks in these big cases. If the composition changes, then the game is very different. One of the uh, interesting uh, aspects of the uh, period in which the court did just have eight justices recently because of uh, the death of Justice Scalia uh, is that uh, the court's docket uh, uh, the justices tended not to take really high-profile, high-stake cases while there was a vacancy. But one of the justices told me that also there was a core group within the eight who uh, were trying to reach narrow, unanimous decisions. And that core group was really uh, in included the Chief Justice, uh, Justices uh, Kennedy, Kagan, and Breyer. So really what you had there is sort of the center of the court with the extremes not willing, or, or not so much not willing, but not as interested in, in reaching unanimous opinions. Now there are some who feel that that was an advantage of an eight justice court, and we should keep eight justices because they will continue to try to strive for compromise, narrow, and perhaps unanimous opinions. Uh, but justices don't believe that's the case. They think eight is not a good number. It's a hard number to deal with. Uh, but Akil, do you see uh, any other uh, ramifications in terms of the court? Well, since we're talking about numbers, um, um, almost definitionally, the, the center holds in, in American politics um, on the court. But there are different kinds of centers. We've been on a, a court for a long time when it's basically um, a 414. Um, four who generally vote conservative, four who generally vote liberal, and Kenny Swings. Now, I'm with Jeff in giving John Roberts enormous credit because the, he doesn't generally swing. He generally votes for the conservatives, but on the two most consequential cases of his entire tenure on the court, two Obamacare cases, he did not vote just with his party mates. And he doesn't like the Affordable Care Act as a matter of policy. But good for him, not just in the case called Sibelius, but in a follow-up case called King against Burwell. And, and all credit to him, because he could have doomed that. That could have been another Bush versus Gore, just by a partisan lineup. And then I would never be able to persuade the future Jeff Rosens of the world that it, there really is law, and it's not all politics. So I yes, give Roberts yes. credit for that. Can, um, I, can I just pause? This is so important, this lesson that Akil taught me. 
And we're trying to teach you the same lesson. We're trying to tell you that it's not all politics. Don't assume it's all Republicans and Democrats. But Akhil is right that this is a battle for the soul of the court and the Constitution. And if the court does divide, it's going to be harder for us to teach you that lesson. So it's generally, though, apart from Obamacare, 414 when Scalia was around, um, and Kennedy votes with liberals on, let's say, um, affirmative action most recently, or, or uh, gay rights, or in, in certain First Amendment contexts, and with conservatives and other things. But that's not the only way that a center could hold. Under the Burger Court, for example, there were three or four justices in a middle coalition. Potter Stewart, Byron White, um, John Paul Stevens, um, Lewis Powell. So there was actually there was a liberal wing, a conservative wing, and a whole middle group. That's a fundamental thesis of Bob Woodward and, and Scott Armstrong's book, uh, um, The Brethren, of Linda Greenhouse and Michael Gratz's more recent book on the Burger Court. Had Garland been confirmed, and, and, and I love Merrick Garland, I supported him, this was not stolen. You know, people say this was stolen. It was not stolen. The Democrats lost it. They lost it twice. They lost it when they failed to carry the Senate. When we failed to carry the Senate in 2014, we lost the Senate. And then there was a referendum on the court, and we lost the presidency and the Senate in 2016. But if we had won either of those, Justice Merrick Garland, that's what you'd have today. So it wasn't stolen. It was lost because one side showed up. Um, and the other side didn't politically. But if Garland had been confirmed, um, and there were political consequences for the hard ball that Mitch McConnell played, and he didn't suffer them because he ended up winning. And, um, That's right. Um, but if he had lost, now, um, um, Obama could have actually said, well, I'm withdrawing Garland, and I'm you know, going to put up a 20-year-old you know, socialist. Um, but he, he, <laughs> he, he didn't. Um, but had Garland been confirmed, it's possible to imagine a very different future court in which Garland and Breyer on, and maybe even Elena Kagan sort of move from the left to the middle, met by Roberts and Kennedy and a much broader coalition of the middle, a la the Burger Court, with Sonia Sotomayor and maybe Ruth Bader Ginsburg more on the left and, and Sam Alito and and uh, Clarence Thomas on the right, that would have replicated. The center would still hold, but it would be a different kind of center, more like the Burger Court, than what you have now, which is a very narrow and precarious balance where one person really is the swing and only the swing. It's, it used to be, you know, it's, it's, it's um, uh, um, uh, O'Connor and Kennedy. Um, now it's only Kennedy except in Obamacare. Um, and, and so there are different kinds of centers, and we, we're not going to have that new center, where Garland, who's not particularly ideological, Breyer, who is the Republicans' favorite Democrat, he's a Joe Lieberman type of person, the Republicans loved working with him on the Senate, might have moved more toward the middle and bringing Kagan with them, met symmetrically by a Roberts and um, a Ken, and that's not going to happen. Um, and so if... Actually, there's a, a vacancy on, um, and, it's one, and it's, let's say, Anthony Kennedy. Yes, it would be a real test of Roberts, whether he actually moves to be more of a balancer, becomes more the Roberts of Sibelius and Burwell um, than he has been thus far, because it would be up to him to do it um, in the Charles Evans Hughes tradition. Agreed. 
Okay, well, that's enough of politics. Now we're going, <laughs> but you have to have a, a framework for what's happening with the court, and that's what uh, you offered very eloquently. So let's talk now about some of the issues that uh, are coming to the court, uh, and some that are already at the court this term. Uh, we're waiting uh, for decisions. You're going to see June be a, a fairly busy month. The court has been a little behind in making its decisions, as well as uh, granting new cases for next term. So June's going to be pretty busy. Uh, the court's sort of marquee case of the term uh, involved a transgender boy uh, out of Virginia. That case disappeared once the Trump administration sort of withdrew the, the legal foundations of it. Uh, so the, the only case left that's a big marquee case in, is a religion case, uh, Trinity Lutheran Church, in which a church claims that the state of Missouri has violated its First Amendment free exercise rights by not allowing it to participate in a state grant program for refurbishing playgrounds with recycled tires. So that's that's sort of the, I, we laugh, it seems like such a simple case, but it's not, and we're waiting for that. There are a raft of immigration-related cases that may relate to what we see coming down the road. So I want to take maybe categories and, and, and give you a sense. Uh, we can all give you a sense of what's at the court and what's coming to the court. I think next term could be a very big term in this court. So why don't we start, uh, why don't we start with religion? And uh, not only with what's at the court this term, but what may be coming. And very interesting to add to this has been some speeches recently by Justice Alito, in which he claims that uh, religion, religious beliefs uh, are under assault in America today. Majority religious beliefs are under assault today. Uh, and he, he has repeated this multiple times. Uh, he has written in the same-sex marriage cases dissent talked about uh, sort of uh, dire circumstances that uh, we may see down the road uh, involving religion. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about you know, what is at the court, Trinity Lutheran, as well as what you see coming to the court. So I had the great experience of being uh, at the court for Trinity Lutheran, which was Justice Gorsuch's first week on the bench. And what was so striking was the consensus in this case that everyone thought was going to be narrowly divided. And the consensus shows that there is uh, a group of liberal and conservative justices in cases involving public benefits who are converging around a view of religious neutrality. So the idea is that when the state gives benefits like funds to fix a playground or like charitable choice welfare benefits or even school vouchers, then they should be upheld as long as it's private choice of individual parents rather than public choice of the state that determines the destination of the funds. And that neutral vision seemed to get Justice Kagan uh, united with Justice Alito and Justice Gorsuch, as well as Breyer, in this Trinity Lutheran argument and the standard feeling in the courtroom as well as of the analysis afterward was that this might not be a close case. It could be seven to two with the separationist justices Justices Sotomayor and Ginsburg, upholding a more traditional uh, view of complete separation between church and state, with the majority converging around neutrality. But that doesn't mean that there won't be incredibly 
contested divisions in religious liberty cases down the line. So as you suggested, there are a bunch of cases in the pipeline involving whether religiously scrupulous individuals or corporations should be able to have exemptions from generally applicable anti-discrimination laws. So the most dramatic case that was bubbling up was a wedding photographer, a Christian wedding photographer, who didn't want to photograph gay weddings because she objected to uh, gays and lesbian people. Uh, and the question was, did she have, did her business, which was basically a sole proprietorship, have uh, a religious liberty right not to obey anti-discrimination laws? That was the same question that raised this incredible five to four division in the Hobby Lobby case a few terms ago, where Justice Alito, writing for the majority, said that the Hobby Lobby Corporation, even though it was a small group of owners, which was a religiously motivated corporation, didn't have to obey the Affordable Care Act's contraception mandates and could have an exemption from that because the free exercise clause of the First Amendment inheres in corporations as well as in natural persons, just as the Citizens United case said that corporations have free speech rights. The Hobby Lobby case said that they have religious liberty rights and they could get an exemption from this law. So Justice Ginsburg in her dissent on the Hobby Lobby case predicted this is an incredible slippery slope where religiously motivated corporations will be seeking exemptions from a host of generally applicable laws involving racial discrimination or uh, sexual orientation discrimination, gender discrimination, and she was really worried. So those are the cases that are going to be coming up. Now, Justice Gorsuch really cares about religious yes. liberty. He's written some fiercely uh, uh, individualistic Jeffersonian opinions about the need for these religious exemptions. He wrote the lower court opinion in the Hobby Lobby case, which seemed to go even further than Justice Alito's opinion in supporting these rights. So those are going to be some knockdown battles down the line. I, um, so that's, I think, what we'll see. A, a, some consensus in these public benefit cases, a lot of contestation in the uh, anti-discrimination cases. And then there's the huge final question about what about school prayer? So the court had been at the Kennedy court on prayer, and it basically said school prayers led by public school teachers are impermissible because the kids might feel coerced. But prayers led by students at football games are fine because that's private choice, not public choice. If Justice Kennedy retires and we have another, uh, I would say the third, I talked about religious neutrality and then strict separationism. There's some justices who embrace a vision of religious supremacism and basically say that the state may openly endorse religion as long as it doesn't favor one religion over another on sectarian terms. So if Justice Kennedy is replaced, there might be a five justices in favor of that supremacist vision, which could lead to a re-examination of the prayer cases, and that would be a sea change in yes, American law. Definitely. Yeah. Akil, any thoughts? Let me just reinforce two uh, or three of the big themes that Jeff laid out beautifully for us all. One, there's an important distinction between the Constitution, its free exercise clause, this establishment clause on the one hand, and a statute that you're going to be hearing a lot more about the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. So some of these cases are only interpreting a statute, a, a, a statute designed to accommodate religion in all sorts of ways, and others of these cases involve, um, or state counterparts to that statute, um, and others of these cases involve the Constitution itself. So that's one very important distinction to keep in mind. Hobby Lobby, for example, was a case under the statute, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. That's the first point. Second, Jeff laid out basically two huge visions 
of what the big idea is that are contending and a shift basically over time between these visions. Um, he called it separation versus neutrality. I they think that's a very fine description. I could call it also separation versus equality. The separationist account um, featuring prominent references to Thomas Jefferson's letter to the Danbury Baptist Church in the early 1800s of, of a wall of separation. That's very paleo. Um, um, the Supreme Court hasn't cited, actually, Jefferson's wall of separation language favorably in a long time. That's what many of you were brought up thinking, and that's not where it's at anymore. We're moving from separation to equality. I myself embrace the equality. I think equality is a better understanding of um, the values of non-establishment and free exercise than separation, and I'll begin to tell you why. If you have a separationist view, of a strict view, you say, well, you know, if a Mars house is burning down, the fire department shows up, you know, with public funds to put it out. Um, and if the public school is burning down, you know, the fire trucks show up. But, oh, if it's that church, you know, the fire trucks don't show up. Let them, you know, put it out themselves. They're separate, which doesn't make a lot of sense, by the way, if that church abuts my house on the one side and the public school on the other side. And, you know, the fire does have this tendency to sort of, you know, jump from one you know, lot to the next. So, but a strict separation, if you say, oh, the spheres have to be separate. Give you another example of the kind of mistake that strict separationism might invite. Let's take separation of powers. Okay, the branches are separate. So here's one thing that separation of powers means. The fact that you um, control the legislature doesn't automatically give you executive branch slots. So in our world, if you're the Speaker of the House, you're not automatically Prime Minister the way in England, there's no separation of powers. So if you're the leader of the legislature, the Speaker of the House, you're also the Prime Minister. Okay, the, so that's one vision of separation. You're not automatically the head of both branches. But now here's even a stricter version, and the American version is, is even stricter. Not only is Paul Ryan not automatically president, no member of the House or Senate is allowed, while they're in the House or Senate, to be a cabinet officer. If Hillary Clinton wants to be a, sec a, sec a Senator Hillary Clinton wants to be Secretary of State. She has to leave the Senate, okay? You can't be a member of both. Well, now think about separation of church and state. One view, which is sensible, is merely because you're the head of a church, you don't automatically have a seat in the legislature, the way you did in England. England has an established religion, and they have a house of lords, spiritual and temporal, and if you're the head of the Anglican church, you're also in the government automatically. We don't have that, right? But suppose even a stricter view. Oh, if you're a man of the cloth or a woman today of the cloth, clergy person, you're not allowed to be in the legislature, even if you're voted for, because we have a strict separation. Some people thought that, but we don't today. We think it would be a discrimination against people of faith if you said a clergy person, if he or she wins the vote, you know, can't be in the government. So I think separation actually is mistaken. I think the idea is religious equality. The government shouldn't treat you any better because you're a member of this um, a religious group or that one, or, or no religious group. Shouldn't teach you any better or worse. And on this view, the school prayer cases are absolutely rightly decided, not just on the separation account, but on a religious equality account, because the government used to be in the business of writing prayers. And that privileged, you know, um, um, the government's um, re preferred religion over all others. So, so okay, say, oh, well, if they write it themselves, 
Um, that's, you know, that's their theology and not necessarily yours or mine. They're privileging one theological view. Suppose they say, oh, well, we're not writing. We're just picking, you know, um, we're doing just Bible reading. Well, first of all, not all of us are Christians or we're Christians or Jews. And which Bible are we going to read? Is it going to be the Douay Bible, you know, um, with the Apocrypha, the Catholic Bible or the, the King James Bible? Which version of the Ten Commandments? Because there are different versions. Where does the first commandment end and the second one begin in different religious traditions? Actually, so the government shouldn't be in the prayer writing business or the prayer administering business because that's taking science. Equality justifies most of the, the, the landmark Warren Court opinions protecting religious liberty. But I think it's a better metaphor than separation. And yes, in the long, and, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg is paleo. And Sonia Sotomayor is paleo, and the world is leaving them behind. Don't, don't, don't bet on them, because the future actually is equality, which is more of a piece also with a vision of racial equality, of gender equality, of equality as between liberals and conservatives, the government shouldn't be picking sides um, in terms of, 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 of speakers, shouldn't be favoring um, liberals or conservatives in public discourse. So equality, which Jeff called neutrality, is actually the wave of the future, I think. And it's more consistent with the Constitution's first principles. Establishment clause says we shouldn't be favoring religion. The free exercise clause saying we shouldn't be disfavoring it. We should treat religion, all religions equally, and religion equally with people uh, who, who happen not to be of faith. That's a better, more attractive constitutional vision. So the harder question, though, moving away from uh, funding uh, and prayer is the wedding photographer and also who does not want to shoot a gay wedding. And also, the court has had pending now for months a case that it has yet to decide whether it wants to hear a case involving a Colorado baker who does not want to bake a wedding cake for a gay couple and was found to be violating the state's anti-discrimination uh, public accommodation law. So, so how far do right. we go? Let me bring in one further concept here because I mentioned equality, I mentioned separation. Let's talk about liberty. Now, I'm not so keen on thinking about the liberty of Comcast or AT&T or these big monopolies that don't give me any choice, okay? But when you're talking about an individual person um, who's not a corporation, not a common care, truth be told, you know, I believe strongly in gay rights. But if that person doesn't want to make my wedding cake, I don't want them to make my wedding cake. By the way, they're going to spit in the cake. You know, yeah. Do not <laughs> insult the wait staff, okay? You know, I don't, if you don't want to take pictures at my, my wedding, screw you. I'll pick someone else because you're going to take pictures of me picking my nose. So, so liberty is actually, when it comes to individuals, an important concept. And larger organizations shouldn't be discriminating in employment and all the rest. But when it comes to individuals who have their own freedom, maybe they have kooky religious views and all the rest. Liberty is an important concept, too, um, as a matter, maybe not of the Constitution, maybe of the Constitution, but also of certain statutes that um, try to sometimes. Uh, so if how, um, how many places actually are there where there's only one baker in town? You know, one photographer the Upper West in, Side in town. Pretty rough. Yeah. <laughs> now, um, uh, when it comes to getting, you know, internet access, there's one cable company, and they have to serve all comers. 
and you got to deal with, and they should be treated kind of like the government and have all sorts of anti-discrimination mandates. Large employers should not be allowed to discriminate in these ways, but individual private um, um, operatives, especially when they, when what they do is an extension of their own personhood in, in some ways. What they do is they, they make cakes and they put themselves into it, their love into it, or their hate, you know. They, they are photographers and that's very expressive. Right. You have now First Amendment and liberty arguments that are also now in the mix in those cases. Just very briefly, the problem with that uh, inspiring vision of liberty, of course, is that the court is applying it to corporations right. and that the Hobby Lobby case uh, seemed to treat the mom and pop uh, Bible selling store no different than Comcast. And it wasn't quite mom and pop. Hobby no. Lobby is a very it's big been. business. And Absolutely. on that one, we could think about the liberty interests of the individual employee women who actually have rights, if you know, their own religious views, which might actually require them to use contraception in certain cases and, and, and all the rest. Now, in defense of my friend Sam Alito, I disagree with him on a bunch of things. And since we were talking about the justices, John Roberts has crossed the aisle, and so has Tony Kennedy, and so famously has did, did Nino Scalia and Clarence Thomas in cases. Clarence Thomas just you know this week, and uh, John uh, Sam Alito never once has voted with the four liberals on anything. Another way of saying that is Ruth Bader Ginsburg has never once assigned an opinion of the court because the only way she would ever get to do it if it were the four liberals plus Alito and that and no one else. That's never happened. So. Um, so he, don't expect him. Right. It's going to have to be John Roberts who, who, who does it. But in defense of Justice Alito's position in Hobby Lobby, he tried to come up with a position in which the women would get their health care. It, it would be paid for by a different way. The insurance companies want to give women access to reproductive care because it's cheaper if they don't have kids for the insurance company that they do have kids. So Sam Alito was trying to come up with a compromise in which they get their health care, their reproductive care, and the employers get to um, satisfy their own religious views, which to me might seem kooky, but it always seems kooky. Someone else's religion will always seem kooky to someone who's not you know, a member of that religious view. So he was actually trying to come up with a compromise in which they can accommodate their principles and the women can get their health care. And I was saying when it comes to bakers and photographers, of which there are many in most towns, maybe you can have your wedding and they can have their principles and can't we all get along? <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> uh, speaking of can we all get along, uh, it, we cannot get out of here without talking about President Trump and the legal issues that have uh, he, his administration has spawned. And certainly uh, what we're seeing happening, at least in the courts right now, has to do with immigration. Uh, there's the uh, travel ban executive order, and there's also the sanctuary city executive order. So uh, let's talk a little bit about the travel ban, because there's so much in there. Uh, while the decision today had to do with the Establishment Clause, there's also the immigration statute and how that's interpreted. There's a question of separation of powers, the role of the federal courts, the role of campaign statements. Uh, so, Jeff, go ahead. It's a superb case. It's a constitutional feast. <laughs> <laughs> and what's so striking about it is that judges on both sides of the aisle keep striking the bans down. And it is remarkable to see the first ban fall, and now the second ban seems to be falling too. And it's falling on all the grounds that you mentioned. First, uh, religious discrimination. 
the judges in the Fourth Circuit today, listen, read, read the decision. It was an amazing exchange where Chief Judge Gregory said, the president's campaign statement saying, I want to keep all Muslims out of the U.S. should be viewed as relevant evidence that he wanted to keep all Muslims out of the U.S. and that that is an unconstitutional motive that violates the First Amendment's ban on establishment of religion. Judge Neumeier in uh, dissent said, Neumeier. we shouldn't take, uh, Neumeier said, we shouldn't take uh, campaign statements seriously. People change their views in the campaign and this might inhibit free speech. And Chief Judge Gregory shot back, if we inhibit candidates from threatening to discriminate against people on the basis of religion, that would be a good thing. <laughs> so there's a big set of questions of whether these extrajudicial campaign statements should count, whether uh, the legislative history surrounding the ban should count. In the first ban, the discrimination was inscribed into the law because it created an exception for minority religions, i.e. Christians. The second ban solved that problem, but judges have concluded that its motive was unconstitutionally based on religious animus. And it's not impossible to imagine conservative justices like a Justice Gorsuch agreeing that laws infected by an explicit des desire to discriminate against a religion uh, violate the Establishment Clause. Then there's the question of the <coughs> statutes. So they're conflicting statutes. One says the president can exclude anyone he wants from the country. The second said he can't exclude people on the basis of religion and other impermissible considerations. And how to balance those statutes is tough, especially given the general deference that the president gets when it comes to immigration. But most of the judges who have considered this have said that the explicit ban on discrimination should be read in conjunction with the president's discretion and should not be overtaken by it. And then finally, there's this fascinating question of the separation of powers, as you mentioned. President Trump is learning the same lesson that President Obama did. When you try to achieve by executive order immigration policy that you're unable to achieve from Congress, courts are likely to say no. That's because the Constitution in Article I gives Congress plenary authority over immigration. And now is the time for this dramatic plug. Uh, you must, ladies and gentlemen, download this thrilling new app, the Interactive Constitution. And I want you to download it. Not now. I actually turned off my cell phone because I was told to for the show. But after, after the show, go to your sh uh, go to the App Store, download Interactive Constitution. The National Constitution Center has assembled the greatest liberal and conservative scholars in the country, nominated by the Conservative Federalist Society and the Liberal American Constitutional Society, to write about every clause of the Constitution, describing what they agree about and what they disagree about. Imagine being able right now as we're speaking to click on to Article <laughs> 1 and to find out about Congress's immigration power. Or imagine clicking on to the 14th Amendment and find incredible scholars, including Akhil Amar, who, oh wait, Akhil, you still haven't turned in your essay for the Interactive <laughs> Constitution. It is late. You need to turn it in because people need to learn about the Privileges or Immunities Clause. I used to give him assignments, and now he's giving You're me You're a year late, Akhil. You're the only law professor yes. who hasn't turned in his essay on this incredible app, which you will download after the show. But what is so amazing about this stunning and entirely free new app, which has gotten 10 million hits since it launched a year ago, and which the College Board has adopted as the centerpiece of its AP History and Government exams, is that in, it's an amazing thing. It was just so exciting to bring these groups together and just to see how beautiful it is that in so many of these issues, there really is a lot of agreement as well as disagreement. And the point for, I was waiting for the excuse to make the plug for what was so cool about the essay about Article One and the immigration power is the conservative and liberal scholars Randy Barnett, the leading proponent of federalism on the conservative side, and Heather Gerken, the new, Akhil's new dean at Yale Law School, the leading advocate of progressive federalism on the other side, 
both say that it's really Congress that has plenary authority over immigration. And when the president tries to act in the face of congressional silence or disapproval, courts are likely to say you can't do that. So that's exactly what the Supreme Court did to President Obama, dividing four to four over his effort to implement the deferred deportation of the Dreamers, even though Congress had refused to do that, leaving the stay in place. And that is very likely what the Supreme Court might do in this travel ban. That was going to be my next case. question. What do you think the Supreme Court would do with this? I mean, we should. You, you're a better vote counter, and I guess we should go justice by justice because it's a complicated case. But I think the combination of the religious discrimination, which none of them likes, obviously the liberals don't, and, and I think Justice Gorsuch, when he was talking with great passion about the need to check unconstitutional acts of the president, and he cited Robert Jackson. So the justice he's been appointed to replace is Robert Jackson was the most beautiful writer in the history of the court. And Akhil kindled me the importance of legal writing and Jackson in his beautiful, well, the greatest line of all uh, in, in the First Amendment history is, if there's one star in our constitutional constellation, it's that no official, high or petty, should be able to prescribe what's orthodox in matters of religion. It's just gorgeous. And in the steel seizure case, President Harry Truman trying to seize the steel mills in the middle of the Korean War using his commander-in-chief power. The court says you can't do that. Uh, Truman is stunned. But Jackson basically says when the president is acting with congressional approval, his power is at its highest zenith. When he's acting in the face of congressional opposition, his power is at its nadir. And when Congress is silent, he's acting in a zone of twilight, which is a resonant do-do-do-do-do-do-do. But that <laughs> phrase is one that uh, Gorsuch completely loves the Jackson opinion. And I think he could well conclude that given the uh, refusal of Congress to do anything like endorsing this ban, the silence on the matter, and the clear statute, more relevantly, saying you can't discriminate on the basis of religion, that's an example of acting more at the nadir rather than in the zone of twilight and striking it down. Akil? Uh, so once again, let's distinguish between statutory issues and constitutional issues. I think the strongest arguments against the Trump policy are actually statutory based on the immigration Reform Act of 1965, signed into law by Lyndon Johnson and uh, at the New York Historical Society. My friend Philip Bobbitt um, recently gave a, um, a, a very important uh, presentation about that on the 50th anniversary of that statute. That statute does have language that, that, uh, that there shouldn't be discrimination against any particular country. Um, and that's the strongest I think, legal argument against the Trump policy. The counter is um, um, that this is only a temporary um, action and not a permanent one. And so that provision doesn't apply. And there's another provision of an earlier statute under the Cold War that gives presidents in the name of national security broad powers um, uh, to protect the national security. And how those two different statutory provisions from two different eras, one from the McCarthy period and one from the uh, liberal Lyndon Johnson Great Society era are to be reconciled, that's, I think, the really interesting question. I'm less um, uh, uh, of the view that the Supreme, that there's a clear Supreme Court majority to say that this travel ban violates the Establishment Clause. I'm not um, as much of the view as Jeff that Neil Gorsuch might lean in that direction. Because here's what you need to, I think, um, I haven't read, it's 205 pages. I, 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 I haven't had a chance to read it. 
I think that the Chief Judge Gregory lost Neil Gorsuch in his first paragraph, where he says, we're going to focus on context and not text. The text of the executive order does not discriminate on religious grounds. And that's actually important. Um, and if you're trying to discriminate on religious grounds, oh, you're doing a piss poor job of it, given that 95% of the world's Muslims come from countries that aren't implicated by this ban. Okay, um, So this ban doesn't talk about Pakistan or Saudi Arabia or India or Indonesia uh, or Egypt, um, um, where most of the, uh, the Muslims in the world live. So, and there are formalists on the court who will look at this and say it doesn't say religion. It doesn't even quite do anti-Islam. They may be willing to invalidate on a much more narrow statutory basis, which is more. Um, but but um, uh, Jeff said, and it's very important, that um, Democrat as well as Republican appointees on the lower courts are beginning to speak out again. That's the interesting thing, because I'm not sure just how many Republican judges have weighed in. I haven't had a chance to do a careful vote count of the fourth circuit, but it was something like 10 to 3 or 10 something? to 3. 10 yes. to 3. So that's an interesting fact. Now, the courts, the lower courts that tend to um, you know, be, have uh, ruled are coastal courts in general. And the coastal courts tend to be more blue. Um, Gorsuch is interesting in that regard because although he's educated um, in blue America, he lives in um, um, the hinterlands, in, um, um, in, 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 in the middle of the country, you know. He skis uh, in Aspen. Yes. <laughs> it's um, not the hinterlands. Uh, so, um, uh, uh, so the Supreme Court is differently composed and will be, of course, differently composed. Were Justice Kennedy to step down, um, you should not assume that the Fourth Circuit is easily going to be affirmed on the constitutional ground. I think it's a much more difficult question. Okay, uh, I want to leave a little time for some of the questions that we got. So uh, this is a good one. What do you make of the recent gerrymandering case, in particular Justice Thomas's vote? Just what I said before, that Justice Thomas has voted with liberals. He, the four Democrat appointees plus Thomas made up the, the, the key majority in that. And Nino Scalia voted when he was uh, around with liberals in certain contexts, flag burning and other situations. Um, John Roberts, in the two biggest cases of his lifetime, did it, the two Obamacare cases, and Kennedy all the time. And, and I love Sam Alito, but he hasn't done, done that not once yet. So that is a difference between Clarence Thomas, let's say, and Sam Alito, both conservatives. But Clarence Thomas is a certain kind of conservative who actually thinks that there are neutral principles that are very different than politics. Sam Alito went, to, they both went to Yale Law School, but Sam Alito believed his law professors who taught him the exact opposite lesson that I tried to tell Jeff, who taught him that law and politics pretty much the same thing. And then Sam Alito- Who is, taught him that? Yeah, I, we, we, I'll tell you afterwards, <laughs> offline. That's you know. terrible. Yes, How it is. I agree. So I'm, I'm more, so with, I'm more with Thomas in yes. this distinction. But Sam Alito is, in legal parlance, a consummate legal realist. Wow. But, and of course, this is not a liberal principle. The idea that racial gerrymandering is justiciable, as they say, or in other words, that courts are allowed to decide when race is the predominant purpose in drawing a voting district was a conservative principle embraced by the colorblind justices, including Justice 
Thomas and Justice Scalia over the dissents of the, some of the liberal justices who are now embracing it <laughs> to apply this liberal result, as they should, because it's precedent. But it's a period, maybe a temporary empiric victory. This is a good one for you, uh, Jeff. Louis Brandeis once <laughs> said that we can have either wealth concentrated in the hands of fewer and fewer people, or we can have a democracy, but we can't have both. Have recent Supreme Court decisions undermined or subverted our democracy in this regard? Thanks to my mom for writing that question. <laughs> <laughs> you always need a softball. So. No, I have this riveting book on Louis Brandeis, yes. which I'd love to share with you afterward. And the questioner is absolutely right. This is the central cause of Brandeis's life, that what he called so memorably the curse of bigness in business and government and the reckless risks that financers take with other people's money was itself of constitutional significance. And he took this principle not from his own politics, but from Jefferson, who introduced an amendment to the Constitution, which wasn't adopted, that would have prohibited Congress from setting up corporations with exclusive privileges, that was developed by Jackson, who denounced the Bank of the United States as a tool of the moneyed interests, that was developed by Brandeis and Wilson and perfected by FDR and Harry Truman. There's a great book um, that I just uh, uh, read uh, called uh, Economic Inequality in the Constitution. Uh, and it sets out this tradition. And it's just fascinating how fiercely not only Brandeis, but many of the framers, Madison and Jefferson, were in disdaining monopoly power and thinking that concentrated wealth really was of constitutional concern and believing that only what Brandeis called small men, small businesses in small scale communities like Jeffersonian farms or shires could fully achieve the self-actualization and could develop their faculties of reason in ways that would allow personal and professional self-government. So that, you know what's so inspiring about that tradition, it sounds radical to say it now, it's sort of Bernie Sanders-like, although there was some anti-bank talk by both major candidates in the last election. In the election of 1912, and I'm in the middle of this because I'm writing the Taft book, all three candidates are opposed to the curse of bigness and curving monopoly power, but for different reasons. Brandeis and Wilson want to break up the banks so that they can't threaten liberty. Theodore Roosevelt wants to create big regulatory bodies to oversee big corporations, which is the, it's the new nationalism versus the new freedom. And Taft, that unsung hero, is the constitutionalist. He's a former judge. He's pining to be chief justice. And he wants vigorous antitrust prosecution. And he brings more antitrust prosecutions in his one term than Roosevelt, the vaunted steward of the people, did in two. So it's remarkable that that opposition to monopoly power, which is embraced by all, all, both parties in 1912, is embraced by neither party today. And I think the Electoral College victory of Donald Trump showing the anger that people in the Rust Belt have about having been ignored by both conventional Republicans and conventional Democrats is a sign of how this beautiful Brandeisian constitutional tradition must be heeded. And if it's not, then it will express itself in anger and resentment. And, and so have recent Supreme Court decisions undermined <laughs> or so, subverted our democracy in this regard? So I asked Justice, I got to interview Justices Ginsburg, Breyer, and Kagan for this Brandeis book because they all love Brandeis. And I asked Justice Ginsburg that very question, what would Brandeis have thought of Citizens United? And she said, he would not have been a fan of Citizens United, not at all. 
because in Justice Ginsburg's views, Citizens United combines Brandeis's hatred of concentrated corporate power with his devotion to uh, preventing uh, the free speech uh, marketplace from being dominated by corporations. And Brandeis actually supported the progressive era laws like the Tillman Act in 1907 that were called into question by Citizens United. The argument on the other side is that if you believe that corporations have the same rights as natural people, then they should be able to develop their own faculties, just as Brandeis said. But I'm not convinced by that, because for Brandeis, speech is a natural right. It comes from God or nature and not from government. And that's why he was so keen on the need to educate ourselves and develop our faculties of reason, as Jefferson said. And corporations can't do that. So I think the answer to the question is Brandeis would not have liked Citizens United. He would have been concerned about the effect of concentrated corporate power both on our economy and on our media environment. He would have supported doctrines like net neutrality, which are now under siege in the regulatory state. And after all, this is the man who created the Federal Trade Commission and the Federal Communication Commission. He wanted mixed regulatory bodies. He doesn't like the New Deal, but he does believe that government has to be regulated in order to protect liberty and to oppose monopoly. Well, I'm sorry, we don't have time for more questions, so this is, you're going to have to come back. This is to be continued. Marcia Coyle, Jeffrey Rosen, appeal you tomorrow. Thank you so much. Thank you all for joining us. Please stay for the book signing. Uh, several of our speakers will be signing their books. Akil Riedemar and Jeffrey Rosen. Marcia Coyle will be there as well. And come back again. We have some more programs left till the end of the season. We always love seeing you here. Thank you all very much. <laughs>